Berkeley Yeast, creators of the bioengineered yeast, Tropics, and the newly launched Sunburst Chico, are now offering free overnight shipping on domestic orders of $1,000 or more. All California orders ship free. Berkeley Yeast, ordinary yeast made extraordinary. This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This episode was made possible by the following sponsors. Discover more ways to enhance flavor and maximize beer yields with Salvo. Now available in varieties like Sultana, Trident, Lotus, Calypso, Cascade, and many more. Discover how Salvo can help boost your brew at hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. No alcohol, low alcohol beer. How to answer to this global trend? Discover Saf Brew LA01, a Saccharomyces Chevalier yeast specifically selected for the production of NABLAB. This yeast assimilates simple sugars, glucose, fructose, and sucrose, and is characterized by a subtle aroma profile. Want to learn more about Fermentus's no-alcohol, low-alcohol solution? Visit www.fermentus.com. How do we know this gene makes a difference for haze in a lot of brewing strains? It gives brewers more tools and more information and allows more control over making these different styles and taking an approach that's more unique to them. This week on the show, the identification of the gene that determines whether or not a yeast strain is haze positive. Hi, I'm Laura Burns and I'm from Omega Yeast Labs. I'm the Director of Research and Development. Back on episode 244, we talked about previous work at Omega to classify or phenotype haze. Give us a quick refresher on that because it seems like potentially where what we're here to talk about today got started. Yeah, definitely. We had a kind of a jumping off point from the last episode. So our research prior to this was really focusing on more or less the observation that certain yeast strains were better for making hazy IPAs than others and um, a really clear effect of dry hopping and producing haze from these strains. So we kind of outlined several of the ones we would criteria as haze positive. And um, the effect of dry hop with those strains was the later the dry hop and fermentation, the more haze would form. And we're talking like, you know, orange juice, level haze or kind of a milky colloidal haze um, that tends to last and, and stay pretty stable within the beer and during its shelf life. So what happened next? Did somebody jump up and say, let's go find the gene? Well, kind of. It was one of those things where, you know, you kind of, you have 
a couple approaches and most of them will fail and eventually you keep working at it and something something kind of strikes. So that's where we were at that time is we were kind of throwing a bunch of irons in the fire and working on different approaches to doing this. And then really we, we saw some progress with um, a back crossing experiment that we did where we could start to see the, the clear effect of it. It was a genetic trait that was, that was resulting in the phenotype that we were seeing and we could start to track, track it through our back crossing experiments. So that was really more or less like a, okay, we're onto something. This will, this will look like it might work. So. All right. Well, explain that back crossing. How does that work? Uh, so basically in, in genetics, when you're looking to kind of narrow in on a trait, there's a bunch of different ways to do it. But um, with yeast, we kind of rely on our classic genetics and um, they're really pretty simple system to do these manipulations. So back crossing is just taking basically two strains that you would start out with. One of them, you know, has a very clear phenotype that you can score. You have to be able to like, you know, assay for it or design something where you're seeing a phenotype. So whether it be an aroma, you know, potentially flocculation or attenuation, all those are phenotypes you could score. So you got to start out with something that you know you'll be able to see on the next generation and screen for. So we take the two strains um, starting out, one that has the phenotype and one that doesn't, and then basically kind of shuffle their genetics by crossing them. And every time they mate, they're producing offspring. And, you know, if it's a Mendelian trait or dominant trait, it'll segregate 50% in each of the offspring. So we could score those offspring as haze positive or haze neutral and keep following that trait through each successive generation. By the end, um, you know, seven generations later, we're getting down to like 99.9% of um, the traits have kind of shuffled into the haze positive strain. So we continue to back cross it to the strain that's not haze positive, haze neutral and shuffle in the genetics until we get down to the point where we're really only looking at one gene or potentially a couple of different genetic loci that would be different and that we could then kind of screen and look for. So it only took, it really only took like seven, seven cycles to get to that point. Yeah. So by the seventh back cross, we were 99% isogenic is what we would call it. It's identical to the non-hazy strain. So being so close to the non-hazy strain, we just took a, uh, an approach with um, next generation sequencing and sequenced the entire genome of the back cross strain and the parental strains. And then we were able to hone in on a like, specific locus that was um, linking back to haze. So, Explain what locus means to most, most folks listening probably don't know that. <laughs> yeah. So like, basically, you know, if you have a bunch of different chromosomes, yeast has um, 16 chromosomes. So you're looking for a specific region within a chromosome that maps and looks like um, one of the parents, but not like another. So it's, it's really doing kind of, I guess, the best analogy we came up with when we were trying to talk about this to the lab is if you were to shuffle a bunch of cards. And so I had maybe two card decks. One of them that we start out with was a lucky card deck and the other card deck didn't have any luck. So 
by um, if they're they're different enough, you know, one's a bicycle deck, one's your deck from wherever, you know, trip you took last and you're shuffling them, you kind of have to keep going back to um, one of the decks to, in the end, come down to a single deck that only has one card that's similar to the original lucky deck. And then you know that's your lucky card. So it's just a shuffling experiment where you're trying to get rid of all of the other genes that don't mean anything to Haze. And then by the end, you want to be able to identify the region or the locus that is different. And that's how you pick out the Haze gene. Explain the difference between long and short read sequencing and why that matters here. Oh, man. So a lot of um, the sequencing that has been done on yeast and industrial brewing yeast has been short read sequencing. And to initially identify the haze locus, we relied on short read data. But short read data is much smaller, little snippets. You know, it can be um, 20, 50 nucleotide bits of uh, DNA sequencing that span you know, the whole genome, but then have to kind of be mapped back to what we call a reference genome to start to get more information out of, um, out of the sequencing data. And so that it's, it's not easy to start with short read data and generate a new genome sequence. You kind of have to use another sequence, a reference sequence to scaffold all those short reads because they don't span enough to really give you enough information of overlap. But long read sequencing can be, you can, in, in theory, you can get a full sequence read across an entire chromosome, but usually the average read length is like maybe three to eight KB or thousand base pairs. And when you get those long read sequencing data sets, it's much easier with confidence to assemble the genome because you have a lot of overlap between the reads. And... Um, you know, it's, it's kind of, it allows itself to scaffold um, within those reads. So one's really good for getting like high accuracy information of the different potential variations within the genes. That one would be short read. But the other one is really good for getting at like long regions of, of repeat elements or regions that are a little bit more difficult to assemble because of the structure of the region. So there's benefits to both of them. And for this project, we really had to rely on both. Um, the first backcrossing experiment was short read data sets, and we kind of honed in on that specific locus of haze with the short read data sets. But then later, we, made, we made a lot of use of the long read data sets to understand the structure of the gene. Dig a little deeper into the detective work you did here and tell us about the gene that you zeroed in on as your top suspect. Okay, so I guess from the first backcrossing experiment, we were looking across the genome and we wanted to find the region that showed variation that was consistent with the Hayes phenotype. So by doing this, we actually, we are able to look very closely into this region on chromosome 9 on the left telomere arm um, that showed a very consistent correlation to Hayes. And when we kind of started digging in deeper on that region, the one thing that was interesting with the short reads, which gave us a little bit of like pause and huh, that doesn't really like make sense is that the coverage, which means the number of reads that we're mapping to this specific spot on chromosome nine, all of a sudden was skyrocketing. So we were getting, instead of like a normal 
read count in that area would be, you know, 200. That might be the amount of coverage we got across the yeast genome. All of a sudden in this region of chromosome nine, we were seeing counts all the way up to 1500. So we knew that the coverage was really increasing over this region, but we didn't know why. So from there, we started to look at the coordinates and map that back to predicted genes in that region. And that's, that's kind of how we started narrowing in on this, this gene hazy one, which it didn't even have a really a name to tell you what the gene was doing. It was really more or less a, it was picked up on a, a genetic screen in yeast, but a lot of the screens that they do in the lab don't really mean anything to what the yeast do in their environment or, you know, in brewing. They're kind of just looking at these snapshots of growth and um, trying to score phenotypes, but nothing really came out for its phenotype. So basically we knew it was there, but we didn't know what it did and nobody, you know, didn't really have a name or anything, I guess. Exactly. Actually, yeah. it's, its previous um, name was CSS1, which just meant condi condition-specific secreted. Okay. And we, we actually found out from the gene, the lab strain, you know, that people do all these characterizations and all the studies, the gene itself was mutated. So it was called a condition-specific secreted kind of gene, but there's a part to this gene which actually anchors it to the cell wall that was lost in the lab strain. So potentially it wasn't even, it was getting secreted, but it really should just be stuck on the yeast cell wall um, through this, this part of the um, protein that's called a GPI anchor. It anchors it into the cell wall. So even when it had like some sort of described function in the lab strain, it really wasn't describing what it was doing. So we, we kind of uh, kept looking deeper into the, you know, the wine strains and the brewing strains and looking at the differences in how this gene kind of structure, how does it change within all these industrial strains? And that's when we started to see this internal repeat region just expanding dramatically in the hazy strains. So that's kind of, you know, from short read data, we saw like this big spike in coverage over the region of the gene. And then when we started to look into it more deeply and in more industrial strains, and we, we got long read sequencing of all of the strains in our genome in a collaboration with our, our um, one of an ac academic lab we collaborate really tightly with in Cornell, the Gibney Lab. So we've kind of worked back and forth with sequencing data and some of the long read sequencing data that they had, we were able to mine through and find all of these expansions in, in the gene itself. And that was cool because, you know, there's other genes that we work with in brewing strains that have similar structural changes. The flocculin genes are similar in a sense that they have these intergenic repeat elements, which are similar to what we're talking about, that just through probably replication errors when the genome is being replicated, there's events that just cause these repeats to expand and and um, some of the repeat expansions that we were seeing, you might normally only have like five to 10 repeats in a non-hazy strain. We were getting up to 50 repeats in a hazy strain. So it was really expanding the size of the, of the um, gene. And in these regions that were highly enriched in specific 
amino acids um, that would be targets for glycosylation. So all of this was keying us into something that would be really interesting, similar to genes that we've seen in brewing strains be altered to confer, you know, flocculation phenotypes. So it was honing in on kind of something that we were, we were really confident would be impacting a brewing phenotype. Okay. Do you want, is now a good time? Do you want to talk about how and why you disrupted uh, hazy one using CRISPR? Uh, well, okay. So with the genetics, a lot of the time you're, you're trying to kind of identify this new gene potentially, but to really nail it down, you want to know if you get rid of the gene or if you alter the gene, does the phenotype go away or does it alter the phenotype? You know, is it necessary? Does that gene really confer the phenotype? Is it necessary for that phenotype to exist? So when we were looking at the Hayes positive strains, we wanted to delete Hayes one And if it truly is the only gene in that strain conferring Hayes, then we should see Hayes go away. And did and you? Yes. Yeah, we did. We, we had, so one of the reasons, um, you know, we did that is because there was such an incredible amount of variation in Hayes one across all of the industrial strains we looked at. It, it's a complex gene. It's similar to like the flocculin gene. So when we were looking at it, it was really hard to resolve what was different between the strains. We just knew we saw a pattern of these repeat expansions, like getting making the gene longer and longer as haze increased. So we took several of the strains that were haze positive and had the long expansions in hazy one. And we deleted hazy one in those strains and we saw that we lost haze. So for us, that was a very clear answer to, okay, we honed in on this region and our first backcrossing experiment, but that was really only looking at one brewing strain. So how do we know this gene makes a difference for haze in a lot of brewing strains? Well, we had to go and look at the genetic sequencing and, and kind of try to tease it out to see if we could see similar patterns in other brewing strains that were haze positive. And then the ultimate experience, I think, in the end was to disrupt it, disrupt hazy one and all of these strains and show that we were able to disrupt haze. Coming up. Like, why would dry hop timing have such an influence? Like, early dry hopping almost negates the effect of a late dry hopping. It's not only that you get less haze with early dry hopping. If you do early dry hopping, you don't get as much haze out of the later dry hopping when double dry hopping. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support. Support for this episode comes from BSG. Looking for a sustainable way to increase fermenter capacity? Try FirmCap Eco from Kerry. Developed as a part of Kerry's Eco Brewing range, FirmCap Eco is a plant-based alternative to traditional silicon-based products. 
Firm Cab Eco increases fermenter capacity by reducing foam height to improve beer foam stability and enhance hop utilization. Visit bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact your BSG sales rep to get started. Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Positively impact your process, product, and profitability with actionable insights from BrewIQ, the industry-leading real-time fermentation monitoring solution. Visit www.precisionfermentation.com backslash MBAA to start saving time and money today. Grist Analytics is the leading quality and production control software platform built by and for craft brewers. The unique cloud-based application gives the unprecedented ability to capture data your way and correlate it across the brewery. Get real-time feedback on the brew deck, analyze correlations from the lab, and track brewery performance while listening to this podcast. Grist Analytics helps you skip past hours of sorting through spreadsheets and paper logs to making informed decisions that drive efficiency and deliver better beer with confidence. GristAnalytics.com Are you sure you're getting the best deal? Visit the Lupulin Exchange, where you can find every hop variety, every brand, and every vendor. Compare prices, reviews, shipping speeds, reliability, and more on over a million pounds shipping direct from every hop merchant and grower in the U.S. The Lupulin Exchange. One stop, all the hops. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. District Pittsburgh has a technical conference September 9th at Pittsburgh Brewing Company in Creighton. District Southern California is having a private tour at Stone Brewery in Escondido September 14th. District Milwaukee meets at the Molson Coors Miller Inn September 21st. The world-famous Master Brewers Brewing and Malting Science course begins September 29th. The 2023 Master Brewers Conference will be October 6th through the 8th in Seattle, Washington. District New England meets October 6th in Lyman. District Michigan's fall meeting will be at Founders Brewing in Grand Rapids, October 19th. District Rocky Mountain meets at Ska Brewing in Durango, October 21st. District Southern California meets November 4th at Tarantula Hill Brewing. District Great Plains, District St. Louis, and the Missouri Craft Brewers Guild are holding a joint meeting November 10th and 11th in Springfield. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Haven't joined Master Brewers? Now's the time. Just for listening to the Master Brewers podcast, become a member for $123 for the year. Head over to mbaa.com and use code BEER2023 when you join. Now back to the show. How exactly does Hazy One create or stabilize haze in beer? Yeah, so we're kind of, we're still working on more of the biochemistry behind it. Um, 
it's interesting. There's some, um, you know, differences in the cell surface, hydrophobicity and buoyancy and um, like behavior of the yeast in general that we think might have helped select for the phenotype. Um, and that's more where we're directing our work right now is how do we kind of discover a little bit more about why these um, genes were altered in brewing strains. And, you know, because a lot of the stuff that we've done over domestication, so we, you know, as brewers for centuries have been kind of um, just like breeding dogs. We've been domesticating to the traits that we really want these strains to have as they ferment beer and, and kind of perform in the brewery like, like we'd like them to. So, you know, non-phenolic, maltose positive, flocculent, the right ester profiles, not many off flavors, all those phenotypes we've kind of selected for, but we weren't really sure how haze was being selected for. Still kind of a open-ended question, but something we think might be related to top cropping and harvesting and um, a lot of the strains that we're looking at are AL strains that confer haze. And so we think that might be more related to how we've harvested and, you know, how AL strains behave in, in our top fermenting. Okay. But there's not much we know still about the actual mechanism of, of how it creates the haze, right? Or is Yeah, it, it's, I mean, if, if we're centrifuging yeast cells out of suspension, you know, we can easily separate yeast from what we consider haze particles. Mm -hmm. So they're much smaller in size and they stay in suspension. They're more colloidal. So we think that this hazy one gene is involved in stabilizing and supporting kind of this haze particle, but getting into like exactly the composition of the haze particle and understanding how that mechanism, you know, with dry hopping, especially how yeast are triggered to produce this haze is still an open-ended question. What do we think, what are like the leading ideas around what that haze particle actually encompasses? We've done some experiments biochemistry wise that we can see these, you know, kind of, we, we are pretty positive that these are involving you know, yeast cell wall glycoproteins, and there's, you know, some composition there that, and, and in the past, people have recognized that, recognized that manoproteins in yeast could potentially support haze. And I think that's where this probably is a different mechanism of haze formation than what we've typically talked about, where we, most people, when they think about haze in a dry hop beer, are high, highly focused on protein polyphenol complexes, it might be that, you know, we're supporting more of that, you know, to be stable and in a colloidal suspension in the beer. But I think this might be more manoprotein related and um, maybe a different mechanism than we thought. When I think about man and I immediately hear Graham Stewart's voice in my head, probably talking about yeast stress from sheer force, that sort of thing. So it sounds exactly, like yeah. that's sort of the path we're headed down per, per, potentially. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, that's, probably the biggest kind of chunk of research that's been done that's kind of correlating back to what we're doing right now is the, you know, haze that's formed after centrifuging or, you know, with poor yeast management when yeast are under a lot of stress. 
you know, and those are, those studies have kind of linked back to it being potentially manoprotein derived haze. And it's still, you know, also people linked it to proteases, they linked it to, you know, other, other things that the potentially could be, but, you know, I think that correlates with what we're seeing is the manoprotein derived haze. Recently, we re-released episode 104, which originally aired back in 2018 when John Paul May took best paper during the Brewing Summit for his work on New England IPA. Uh, among other things, Dr. May talked about the role of protein haze solubilizing beta acids and other hop compounds that were previously rarely found in beer. Does hazy one play a role in flavor or only turbidity? Yeah, that's a really good question. And um, Okay, so the samples that we've done in the lab, we've worked with Hopsteiner to do some of the HPLC to measure beta acids and xanthihumol and um, caryophylline and other uh, nonpolar hop compounds. And surprisingly, you know, we've got a beer that measures 40 NTUs and 400 NTUs. And those are the samples we're looking at with HPLC. We weren't really seeing dramatic differences there. And I'm not clear on why. I think if we were, maybe it's a hard one. I think we're seeing really the composition of the beer is staying very similar. There could be differences that just need us, like we need to dig in a little bit deeper and do some statistics and understand exactly what's going on. But like, for example, if you were dry hopping with two pounds per barrel of Cascade, Jeremy, our friend at Hopsteiner said that would be about 400, I think, ppm of beta acid going into the beer, but really coming out of the beer, like in finished beer, you'd really be measuring in the single ppm, like one ppm beta acid. And that's kind of what we saw in our, in our trials is it didn't really rely on haze and the finished beer, either way, we were still seeing a very low level of beta acid in those beer. So um, I think we still have a lot of work to do there, but our initial findings were surprising to us that we weren't seeing more considerable differences in those nonpolar hop compounds. Talk about the brewing trials and sensory analysis you did as part of this work. Yeah. So um, a lot of, so we, like we were talking about in the beginning of the episode, we took some of our most hazy strains and we like uh, one of our most hazy strains is Brit five, our um, other people call London L three or juice or, um, one that's been highly, you know, used for New England style IPAs. We took our Brit 5 and we disrupted Hazy 1. And again, the finished beer samples were measuring, you know, 400 plus with the parent strain or our, our British 5. And then deleting Hazy 1 re reduced those readings down to like lager pale ale levels, 40 NTUs. Um, so... When we did sensory to compare those two beers, it was two weeks after the beer had been packaged, so it was still pretty fresh. The beer was dry hopped at four pounds per barrel too. So um, at that point, you know, both samples were indistinguishable. We had our trained panel, 12 tasters, do a tetrad, and only one out of 12 tasters was able to identify the correct pair. So very, very low level significance. We didn't see a difference in the two beers. So people drink with their eyes, right? I mean, that was one of the things is that, I mean, it was 
interesting too, because once you took the blindfolds off and people were able to see the beard, there were a lot of comments on how they were different. But in the Tetrad, nobody was able to pick it out without seeing. So um, maybe there's a lot of bias. Maybe, there's a, maybe there is something there, but you just have to be able to identify the two different samples and then further describe how they are different. Um, but it was, I think it was pretty interesting when, every, I mean, we had uh, one of our friends down the street owns a brewery and came by metals with his hazy. <laughs> he got, I think for the first year, um, hazy IPA category was open on GABF. He meddled for his hazy and he came by and tasted them and was similarly more or less like we, we gave the Tetra to him and he was convinced he might have a difference, but that wasn't the correct pair and kind of blew his mind too. Like, how did I not tell <laughs> the differences between these? But yeah. um, I think we have in subsequent batches that we've done, there could be some variation just between the beer when you're brewing it. But I think we're starting to get some more training and people are starting to identify what they think might be different between the samples. So we've had people start to score a little bit more closely on what they pick out as a different between the beers, which I think is really interesting. The, if anything, the difference that we've been identifying is kind of counterintuitive. It's a little bit more bitterness and harshness to the hazy version versus the non-hazy version. Can hazy one produce strong haze without dry hopping? Um, not in our experiments that we've, I mean, I think there's probably a component of dry hop that's inducing a response in the yeast that, and that's kind of one of our, it, it, so it happens with late dry hopping and it, and it turns out probably this CSS one or that, sorry, this hazy one gene is, is turned on later in fermentation. So we think that there's some sort of response the yeast has to dry hop that induces this haze. And I'm sure there's probably other ways that it gets induced. And maybe that's what comes down to kind of the shear stress that people talked about or poor yeast management. I think maybe those are other mechanisms of producing haze with yeast manoproteins that could be relying on some sort of stress response. Cool. Didn't you do some experiments where if you dry hop early that you can, it ends up being like even, even more clear than intended? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, and that's, I mean, one of the reasons why this was a hard project to kind of mechanistically think through is like, why would dry hop timing have such an influence? Like early dry hopping almost negates the effect of a late dry hopping. It's not only that you get less haze with early dry hopping. If you do early dry hopping, you don't get as much haze out of the later dry hopping when double dry hopping. So um, it's like a clarifying effect that we see with early dry hopping. So we're still kind of worrying or like are thinking through what that actually, what that's doing with that early dry hop, why the, the response to the late dry hop would be different. And there's definitely some ideas about, you know, conditioned responses in yeast. If they see a stress, they don't react the same the second time. Mm -hmm. um, so that could be something. And, and I've, I've heard from brewers too. It's not just this early dry hop that, um, negates or kind of like reduces the overall haze potential of the beer but people have shared like you know some of our customers had troop transfers that resulted in kind of more hop carryover from the whirlpool 
Um, and then other customers have talked about like the excessive use of like extracts in the whirlpool. They're just loading their whirlpool up with so much oil that that's having an, a negative effect on the haze. So I think there's potentially an interesting effect of those hop oils getting in in early fermentation that's not letting the yeast have the same response in late fermentation. If you look at some of the most haze positive yeast strains, how does that, how does the level of haze compare in high versus low protein worts? Is there any kind of synergistic effect with other haze drivers here? Oh yes, definitely. So, um, you can do an all barley wort and see, you know, just the effects more or less of the yeast derived haze that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, And that can go from like 40 to 800 NTUs. It's like the base level differences there, but combining, you know, more adjuncts and, and beta glucans and um, kind of other key factors to haze, those can act, act in combination. So like if you brew with a, what we call a haze neutral strain, you know, Chico's haze neutral, but people have made hazy beers with Chico. It's not impossible to create haze in other ways. You just have to work harder. Yeah. You have to work a lot harder. Um, You know, I've heard breweries using pectin and um, breweries doing all sorts of things with beta glucan mash um, kind of uh, just trying to really emphasize the beta glucan content of the beer, but with a haze positive strain, it's, easier. You just, I mean, and maybe you're still going to struggle in some scenarios, but with haze positive yeast, it seems to be just kind of like more uh, straightforward and less reliant on those other components to haze. Okay. Do you have any comments or observations regarding selective pressure for hazy one? Um, Yeah, I think that more comes down to um, kind of one of our theories in this being something that brewers have kind of selected for inadvertently. I don't think brewers saw haze and were like, Ooh, I like that one. (laughs) I think, you know, historically the goal has been to reduce haze and get rid of haze and beer. So it's some other method of selection that doesn't really rely on the haze. And I think, you know, these cell surface proteins like flocculins um, and this hazy one gene alter the composition of the cell exterior like kind of what faces the other cells in suspension so sometimes that allows strains to or yeast to flocculate and come together you know the calcium to bridge between the mannose and the lectin that's kind of one of our main models of flocculation that occurs because those and those glycoproteins are on the cell wall and then this haze this hazy one gene we think has maybe other roles or um, potentially rules in allowing the cells to float to the top of the tank and be more buoyant. And then if you're top cropping yeast, those strains and um, yeast cells that float to the top more effectively can be skimmed off and um, transferred and used for the next batch. So that's kind of one of the working theories we have is that it's changing the cell surface hydrophobicity and allowing for brewers to be able to top crop better. All right. But cool. that's, that's just, I mean, that's kind of working on the other kind of literature and hypotheses that people have had in the past. So we would need to do some more like 
experiments to really show and prove that they, they become buoyant. And, and, maybe I'm, and I'm sure you will. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I mean, this is one of those things that I think is, is kind of like, well, what's next? You know, that's a cool discovery. We, we found this gene impacts haze. Um, so for us, I think we'd like to see it make brewing hazies or non-hazies easier. We've been able to clearly show yeast that we would categorize as haze positive work better for these hazy styles. And then when you're not looking for haze, maybe early dry hop timing is an, is an effective strategy um, if you are using something that's more haze positive. With the genetics known for us, now it's pretty easy to engineer strains for hazy and non-hazy beers. So just hopefully it gives brewers more tools and more information and allows, you know, more control over making these different styles and taking an approach that's more unique to them. Okay, we know hazy one varies across strain, yeast strains. So how do you assess that variation and then communicate it to brewers so they know what to expect for any given strain? The phenotyping we talked about earlier and back on episode 244 can give brewers sort of a haze positive or haze neutral signal, but I imagine brewers want to know how any given haze positive strain stacks up against the others, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, so brewing strains are um, often, they are tetraploid. They have a lot of heterozygosity. So that means they have four copies of every gene. And then even if they have four copies, likely they have different versions of the gene. So we did a little bit of this in our uh, paper in figure four. We looked at all the long rate data sets and we tried to just score the length of the gene and all of the different brewing strains that we have sequencing information for. And we were able to stack up haze positive strains with like more. So the long version of the gene was more abundant, but it's not a clear like this gene has the longest version or this gene has, it seems like the, the changes in the length of the gene are one aspect of it, but there's also probably a copy number aspect. So if, they, if all four genes are the expanded version or um, the nature of the expansion might be different between these strains. So because the genetics is so complicated, like enormously complicated, we're not going to get like a simple yes or no scoring or more or less scoring between strains. It's going to come down to probably phenotyping to get that information. And I think, you know, we do have um, a chart in the beginning of our paper that shows phenotyping across our collection. There's a lot of strains that are analogous to other supplier strains. And you can always write me and ask me if we had any um, phenotyping on your version of a strain and I'll, I'll look into it, but. Um, Do you want to give a top three or something like that for folks oh, who yeah. are just like, Hey, give me, give me, I want, I want the best uh, most <laughs> amount possible or whatever. Yeah. So the top three that we scored in our study, um, Brit five was actually number three. Okay. Um, the, what we call anchor Liberty L was number two. And then a strain we don't even offer or sell, it's not in our catalog, it's our, our Australian ale, <laughs> was number one. So 
Sounds like um, you might have to put that back in the catalog. I know it's a <laughs> it's one, and we've had a couple of brewers brew with uh, the Liberty Owl for a more hazy style, and you know London Owl three and Brit five, the the juicy hazy strain just has that ester profile to complement NEPA styles. And it's not only hazy, but it brings so much more to the table that these hazy strains are really differentiating what type of a hazy IPA you can brew. But I have London, London three, Brit five, that, that is going to just be such a complimentary yeast for hop aroma that um, if you're already using it, you're probably in a good place. <laughs> That was Laura Burns here on the Master Brewers podcast. Check the show notes for a link to the paper and catch up with Laura at the upcoming Master Brewers conference in Seattle. I'm just happy that we were able to put the paper out and I'll be presenting it at the MBAA national meeting this year in Seattle. I'm looking forward to that. Um, Hopefully I get to see a bunch of people there and talk a little bit more in detail on this project. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Proximity Mall, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. Get 